0: Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast with your host, Scott
1: McMahon. Hi, everyone. Yes, my name is Scott McMahon. I'm your fellow Film Trooper. And this episode is sponsored by the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. It's available in paperback as well as a Kindle ebook and an audiobook. In fact, you can actually get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com. And sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible.com, an Amazon company. Again, that's at survivetheimplosion.com. Speaking of Hollywood, one of the key points made in the book is how Hollywood is not in the film business. In fact, they're not really in show business. But rather, they are in the business of license exploitation. And George Lucas, being the poster boy for this business model, has said that all the money is in the action figures. What he was saying is that although Star Wars, the film, made a lot of money, the bigger money came in in the form of license exploitation, using that license to make toys, clothing, video games, TV shows, and books. And on today's episode, I was able to have lunch and grab an interview with the author of William Shakespeare's Star Wars books. That's right, William Shakespeare's Star Wars. Imagine if Shakespeare wrote the Star Wars movies in the style of his time. Well, that's what author Ian Descher did when he combined his love for the Bard and Star Wars. This is part two of my four-part series on storytelling. In the last episode, episode number 102, I interviewed Patrick Moreau of Still Motion about their unique storytelling process and program called Muse. A lot of filmmakers, especially in the documentary field, can't quite work in traditional narrative as we are taught with screenplay writing but rather they have to discover the story when they're out on location. So the gang at Still Motion developed a storytelling program and membership called Muse that utilizes academic research in psychology and sociology to help filmmakers get to the heart and craft of the story when you're out on location trying to make a wedding video, a documentary, or on a commercial shoot with a high-end sports company. Again, that's back in episode number 102 at FilmTrooper.com forward slash 102. So in continuing with the -the outside-the-box storytelling approaches, we have Ian Descher's story of how he came up with the idea for William Shakespeare's Star Wars, and in the process he used to write the books, his journey in getting a publisher to agree to make the books, and the results from writing a New York Times bestseller. Yes, a New York Times bestseller. So for a filmmaker, the New York Times would be something like getting into Sundance and winning an award. You think your filmmaking career was set, right? But as Ian reveals, success is relevant. With that said, let's get on to my interview with author Ian Desher when we met up for lunch at the Oswego Grill in Lake Oswego, just outside of Portland, here on the Film Trooper Podcast. But I want to know, um, I would love to hear your journey because your background is quite diverse. You're quite the Renaissance man. It's, um, you know, music studies, choir, but divinity and writing and Shakespeare, like, where did you start, like, the, and then, and then going to, you know, prior to college, but also where did it lead you to the creation of William Shakespeare's Star Wars? Like, that whole story is fascinating, but I'd love to hear your account of it. So, from, at age eight, I decided what I wanted, wanted to do. Eight.
0: Eight, uh-huh, uh, and I was being an actor, um, and that, and so I, I did, I started doing theater not too long after that, um, and did theater all through middle school and high school and, you know, had the big parts and the high school plays and musicals and things like that. And, um, got into, got to college and, uh, you know, basically, I mean, it's the very common story of like having been, uh, you know, a big fish in a small pond now being a tiny fish in a huge pond. Right. And so. Uh, at the end of my freshman year in college, I auditioned for the theater major and didn't get in. And somebody asked me, like three years ago or so, they were like, "Well, did you did you go to the director of the theater studies major and like beg him to let you in, or like you know appeal or whatever, try out again later on, you know?" And their question kind of, you know, hit me in the face like a sledgehammer. I was like, "Oh my goodness, I know. I just had basically like accepted the end of the dream, you know." So that's when I switched to music. I done I done choirs in high school and that sort of thing, and and decided it was a, you know, I like basically for a summer toyed around with the idea of political science, for I don't know what reason, uh, and then moved on and majored in music. Um,
1: so when, I, when you said it hit you, did it mean like wait? Did I not try hard enough or beg... or what? Yeah. So so I think it struck me because, I had just never.
0: And I'm not the sort of person who, who, you know, gives up super easily on things. So the fact that, you know, I had given up on this this dream that I'd had for 10 years, you know, yeah. um, you know, I, I had just never, it just never occurred to me that it was anything other than like a closed door that was never to be opened again, you know. Um, and and so I was struck by the question because um, because I can't believe that I didn't try harder to make it work basically huh. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I graduated from college in three years and so I think I had some severe tunnel vision about like okay I have to figure out my major really quickly and if it's not like if I'm gonna have to wait another year to audition for the theater major that's not gonna work you know or whatever you know going back and appealing to the director of the program m- never occurred to me like back then which now, I mean, so it just surprises me. Anyway, so majored in music. Um, my The summer before my last year of college, I was back here in Portland, and uh, all my friends were doing cool internships, and so I wanted to do something. I, You know, I'd been working in a bank during my summers as a teller, and so I wanted, wanted to do something more fun, so I contacted the Oregon Symphony and um, asked them if they wanted an intern for free, you know, during the summer. And so they, uh, they... I was an intern there and sort of learned about this world of orchestral administration, which is how I ended up after college going to work for the Pacific Symphony in Orange County and then the San Francisco Symphony. Um, so I did that for three years after college. Do you play an instrument as well besides singing? I know I just sing. Yeah. Oh wow. And okay. I write a little bit, but that's you know, yeah. Um, uh, and so after that, I sort of uh, during my last year at the San Francisco Symphony, I realized I wanted to do something kind of more with my life and thought about a whole bunch of decided, you know, in good typical like you know, twenty early twenty something year old thinking that I would go to graduate school as sort of the way to like launch myself into whatever was gonna be next. And so thought about all kinds of different options like law school or public policy or something like that. And at some point divinity school popped into my head as an idea and ended up going to Divinity School Loving it, um, then loved it so much that I decided to go on and do a PhD in in theology and uh, and so did all of that. My uh, family and I moved back to Portland in early 2008. Uh, I started working for a church half time. It was a half time like pastor position. Uh, and was doing another job because I just because I needed to work uh, in tech support uh, for my wife's uncle's company um, and at some point then I I was not happy with that other half-time job and so I went on halftime with pivot instead because my brother worked there and and he sort of introduced me to the bosses and you know um, and then uh, about four years ago went on full-time with pivot I uh, left the job at the church, um, so so that's what got me around to where I am professionally. And then uh, three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, you know, uh, had the idea to so so <laughs> w- went up to Seattle to, to visit a high school friend of mine, uh, and we sat and watched the Star Wars trilogy, the original trilogy, uh, which I which I knew forward and backward, but hadn't seen for a few years, yeah. um, and. Then not too long after that, read *Pride and Prejudice* and zombies, and then right after that, went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival with my family.
1: Oh, so it's bang, bang, bang. Yeah, the influences. So I sort of attributed,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. I sort of attributed to having, and then at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, we saw this production called *The Very Merry Wives of Windsor*, Iowa, which is a very modern adaptation uh, of *Merry Wives of Windsor*. Takes place in Iowa when gay marriage is becoming legal and all that kind of stuff. Very funny, Uh, and so. Yeah, so I sort of attributed the idea to having Star Wars and mashups and Shakespeare all in my head, you know. And so had the idea when I was at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Looked up Quirk Books online, because I knew they'd published Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and a few other mashups. Uh, And found, you know, their email address, or the email address for their editor, one of their main editors is right there on the site. So I sent him an email and said, you know, I have this idea, what do you think? And he wrote back and said, it's an interesting idea, and if you actually write something, let me know and I'll take a look at it. So I was like, okay, real life editor with the means to do this if he likes it, you know, is, you know, uh, willing to look at it at least. And so I spent the next three weeks putting together the first act of the book and and sent it off to him. And he called me that morning and said, I really want to do this. And the next stop is we have to talk to Lucasfilm about it. And he sent what I did onto a contact he had at Lucasfilm. And they wrote back and wanted to see some edits. They, They wanted me to sort of... Go even deeper with the mashup, and basically be willing to play around with the movies more than I than I had felt comfortable doing. Because you think about George Lucas being pretty yeah, yeah. protective of his material, right? And yeah, yeah. but they. In their wisdom they they sort of said you know if you're basically basically the message was if you're going to do this matchup might as well go all the way with it right so mm-hmm. that's when i had i revised the first couple of scenes so i that's when i had r2d2 talking in english and uh, his asides yeah, the assides, and right. uh and you know adding things like the stormtroopers talking about having drinks with Moss iceland with darth vader and um <laughs> and so they then wrote back and said okay we're we're you know happy with these revisions and you know at that point lucasfilm and quirk books worked out the licensing deal
1: um and that was it here, here, here we are so self-evident i love this book who's the publisher oh there's an email here's an idea there's this intriguing idea if you deliver the goods you still have to execute on the idea right. you executed and got the ball rolling basically creating nothing you know something from nothing it was it was amazing and for everybody who i mean for
0: people who ask me like what's your advice for people who want to be writers? I'm like, please don't listen to my story and be like, that's how it's going to go for me. Because oh, it's not supposed to go that way, right? I mean, it was less than a year from when I had the idea to when the first book came out, which in the publishing industry is just incredibly fast. And so um, I just feel really lucky, honestly, uh, that it, everything happened so, so smoothly. Because um, Disney also acquired Lucasfilm right during that oh, time when we were like going, you know, and... So we weren't sure how that was going to affect things, but it ended up basically being not having any effect. And you no, know.
1: you took massive action, whether or not you knew it or not. You took action. You made the effort to make contact and just do it. And it's interesting to hear that the story of when you were in college and weren't able to get into the drama program and didn't know there was this opportunity that you could go further with it. You know, like, and here, just out of pure inspiration you took the action you know and that's definitely something that over time learning for so many different entrepreneurs is that a lot of them just it's messy it's not very it's everything is messy the creative process is messy and running a business or starting a business is sometimes very messy you just people just gotta just get going gotta do something and it might not turn out the way you think it is but it's, uh, I don't think there's ever a straight line for anybody, you know. Uh, you just <laughs> Sometimes you get that lucky out, uh, fast lane. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. this is uh, everything lined up. I'm ready to roll. Well, and
0: my, my basic feeling was like the absolute worst that can happen is that he can say no. And, you know, I'm no worse off than I was before I had the idea. Right. But if he says yes, you know, then all of a sudden it's a whole new world. So
1: what were you emotionally going through when... Firsty context says, interesting. If you have something, do something, and you're like, was that like enough of an emotional boost? like woo, okay, yeah. that yeah, I mean that was like that was like, oh,
0: that's all right, that's cool, you know, like th- th- but it wasn't I mean, that wasn't as exciting as i I was in a meeting at work when I got the email, you know, like sitting there with my personal email open, which I probably shouldn't have done, <laughs> but right, but I had my personal email open when he wrote back after I sent him the first act. And, and that's when I started kind of like flipping out, being like, oh my goodness, this is, this is huge. He really wants to do this, you know. And we still had to get over the hurdle of Lucasfilm, but, but that felt to me, for some reason, I was less worried about that only because I figured, you know, I don't know. I, I think it helped my odds with Lucasfilm that I had a publisher there who was saying, like, we'll publish this if you, you know, if you give us the, the
1: okay to do it. So you had a good business partner. In a sense, like allow mm-hmm. you do the creative, just but you need to partner up with somebody that has those cloud, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially if they did Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, or
0: right. You know, they so. had, they've had experience, and, and they had done a. They also are the ones who publish the like uh, worst case scenario survival handbook uh, <laughs> books, and so the, and they had done a, a an Indiana Jones version of that when Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out, and so they sort of. That they had already done something with Lucasfilm before, right, and um, not nearly anything quite like this, but um, so that was also helpful that they'd, they'd sort of been there before. And.
1: I first came across your book, actually it was at uh, Things from Another World in um, Milwaukee right by Dark Horse. So it was just there front and center at the checkout stand propped up, and I go, what is this? <laughs> and just, that's, uh, but then I start singing at the cons, the comic cons, I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I had, you know, it took me a while to, like I said, it took me a while to find, discover that you were here locally, mm-hmm. so that was even an, an added bonus, like, oh, how cool.
0: The the guy that got to do the cover art, um, he's, so, he's so talented, and, and you know, the... I mean, the cover really helps, obviously helps sell the book and draw you yes. in. And, you know, uh, I mean, from a marketing standpoint, that was brilliant,
1: I think. And even the packaging of the book, is it's a hard-covered book, but it's small enough. It's like a little hand, like, it's in your hand almost. Like, yeah. it's not a huge paperback that's flimsy or something like that. Yeah, it's, and yeah. That,
0: was a, that was fun, you know, to sort of hear my editor's thought process about that, you know, as he was thinking, you know, really wanted to do a hardcover because he just felt like for for what it was, you know, for being fake Shakespeare, it should be, you know, uh, something that seemed sort of more weighty than, uh, you know, than a paperback. Um, And they did such a nice job with, I don't know if you've ever, if you've taken the dust jacket off, um, but it looks like a... It looks like an old folio, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is gorgeous. Yeah. All the so, details. No, exactly. So they just they just were really thoughtful about how they put the whole package together.
1: You know, reading it, I, I it's, I ha, I can't read it silently, like I I'm, I physically have to say it out loud. So when I'm reading, like, and I, I'm not uh, I don't know enough about Shakespeare. I mean, I know just just a faint like interest about it, and I had this uh, desire to want to know more, like historically. In this historical context and all that kind of stuff, so it's almost like a great gateway to like get you going. Like, okay, wait, wait, this is fun, but now I want to know more about Shakespeare. So,
0: yeah, and that's and that was. A, I mean, I, I always say that the first goal of these books for me is for people to have a good time with them, you know. But right, right after that is that it hopefully, especially for students, you know, is hopefully a good way for them to sort of a bridge into Shakespeare. You know, um, they can read this. That's not nearly as from a vocabulary standpoint not nearly as hard as Shakespeare and it's a familiar story from most kids uh and so it's safer you know um but then when they get into Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet or whatever you know it's not as big of a leap uh once they're once they're reading the real thing because um, they've gotten iambic pentameter and they've gotten some of the vocabulary and they've gotten some of the literary devices and things like that
1: yeah know. yeah and I definitely noticed like like I said was like I started reading it silently, but then I had to whisper, like, like when I read it, like, reading the books, I, I was performing them. It was, an inter- is it, it was a different experience than just reading any other book, you know? So I thought it was fascinating for my take on it anyway. So I um, never really had that before. So it was, like, fun to—it was, like, forcing me to play every character, you know, reading and, like, and trying to get the, the rhythm down of, like, how the, the language is spoken, you know? And uh, just, just, just funny things. It was just like yeah, all the asides, and and um, it was just delight. It just it added the extra level of the expanded universe, almost. You know.
0: <laughs> One as a Star Wars fan, it's so much fun to get inside these characters' heads and you know imagine what they'd be thinking in different situations, and yeah, get to make fun of some of the stuff that I that you know that I've always wanted to make fun of or whatever. You know, like, you know, it's <laughs> just, uh, yeah, it's fun.
1: How long did it take you? So you got the green light to make it happen. So obviously your full-time job, you were like, oh, I guess I gotta do, I'm got i doing this that night on weekends. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to get uh, the New Hope? Uh, was that the first book that you tackled?
0: Yeah, so the, that first book was uh, roughly four months working it, working at, at night, mostly, uh, after my kids were sl- asleep. Um, the the next books were much faster because uh, uh, once you get used to writing an iambic pentameter, it, it becomes it's like a muscle. I always describe it as a muscle. You know, like the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. So, uh, have you ever written this style before, or were you just a fan of it, uh, reading only it? Only a little it? bit. I mean, I had, i had written. I'm the kind of kind of nerd who has <laughs> written the occasional sonnet over the years and that kind of thing. You know, um, I find. I mean, not only do I find language fascinating, but I find uh, poetic rhythm fascinating. And, and you know, when my, in my freshman year English class in high school, when we learned about poetic feet and, and that sort of thing, it all made, like, really intuitive sense to me um, for whatever reason. And so, uh, so I've always been fascinated by it. Um, so it wasn't, you know, I guess I wasn't, I would say I wasn't starting from zero. Like some people would be if they if they were trying this,
1: right, right. So, for all like the um, the layman out there, that means me. <laughs> Ex- explain exactly what is a iambic pentameter. Like, I mean, I remember me- remembering this a little bit of in high school, but I've forgotten completely. Uh, is it the the number of letters of the words? Is the rhythm? Uh, is it like a po- poem structure?
0: So. Um, and I am is one of the uh, poetic feet, um, and it's a, a unaccented syllable followed by an accented syllable. So, like the word release or defend. You know, we don't say release or defend, right? We uh, um, and so and pentameter then is penta like a pentagon, right? It's five in a row. So it's this pattern that goes da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. So the example I always give is in a Simon and Garfunkel, in the Simon and Garfunkel song, I'd rather be a hammer than a nail. Okay. Right? Is you can hear that that sort of cadence uh, oh, yeah. as you go. Um, so to be or not to be, that is the question. That's one that gets okay. at uh, what's called a weak ending, uh, an 11th syllable sort of tacked on to the ending. Um, yeah, so it's this, it's this pattern of 10 syllables, 10 syllable lines um, that Shakespeare wrote, you know, the majority of his plays in. Um, and... Uh, so it's just, you know, so you have to figure out how you're going to do, you know, when it comes to Star Wars, you can't really say Millennium Falcon because you have Millennium Falcon. You have two soft syllables in the middle there. Uh, and and so I sort of shorten it every time to Millennium Falcon, basically, is how it ends up being said. And similarly with Jabba the Hutt, you have Jabba the Hutt, you know, and... So I changed it to Jabba of the Hut," so that oh. it
1: was we would fit within iambic pentameter, basically. To, you, you're noticing there was a cadence to it, and that was really fun. And I, I was like amazed, like, "Guys, keeping it up all the way through the entire story, <laughs> like no breakdown whatsoever." So it's an amazing job. I know that um, in the world of filmmakers, like there's there's this concept of if I make one film that's a hit, like then everything's like let's say taken care of but from the outside perspective these books are huge like I said we were talking earlier the Amazon reviews alone are like upwards to like 500 reviews altogether. I see them all over the comic stores and Barnes and Noble I mean it's prevalent it's not like they're tucked away they're like front center like displayed um what has the ex- the ride been since writing the first book and finishing all the six movies are you doing a uh, The Force Awakens now are they uh, contracted you?
0: possibly so we're talking about it with Lucasfilm right now and I don't I, I truly don't know for sure okay, yet so okay. uh, I'm hopeful uh, I think there's a 80-90% chance it'll happen but I don't you know I've learned to not be sure of anything until exactly. you know until there's a contract signed basically yeah. Yeah.
1: so it has what's been the ride for you in terms of um I noticed that on your website like you have to put a big disclaimer like, Look anybody who wants to do a live performance of this, like I don't it's like I don't so. you could go into the d- disclaimer, but it's essentially like I don't have the rights, you know, it's it's that's not what you know and I don't think they're granting any rights performance for any of that kind of stuff. So
0: Yeah. So that was one of the things that my editor sort of Talked to me about early on was was like um, you have to understand that when you do a Star Wars book, the copyright goes in Lucasfilm's name, not in your name. So that's a different than most books uh, would be, and that's just sort of their uh, it's their prerogative in the way they do things with their Star Wars movie, and which I get, I totally get. It's their thing that I've taken and changed basically, um, and uh, and so yeah, so that means they get to make decisions about uh, any performances or, you know, they, I basically heard that they were planning to do the audiobooks and, and, you know, had to be like, Hey, can I, can I be involved? Uh, you know? Uh, and so that was, that was fun. Uh, but then so, so, so the, the journey has been the book came out, the first book came out in July, 2013 and my editor had always said, you know, we'll see how the, we'll see about the sequels based on how the first book does and the first book came out and was very successful and and so in a couple weeks they asked me if I would do Empire and Jedi Uh, so of course I said yes I mean I you know I I wanted to do them and uh, why not and um, so we did those and and we talked anyway after or as those were sort of like You know coming close to publication like we started talking about the prequels and I was never gonna do them I never you know, I just never thought there would be enough of a reason to do them But I kept getting asked by people and not not only adults I mean adults were asking me but but especially kids like kids, you know 12 13 14 for whom the prequels are That's what is Star Wars to them, you know more than the original trilogy um, and so we finally decided. I mean, this was, and this was right after Jedi came out. You know, we sort of made the decision to go ahead and do the prequels, also. Uh, so, so Empire and Jedi both came out in 2014, and then all three prequels in 2015 because they basically wanted to get them all out before The Force Awakens. Yeah. Um, so it's been, you know, crazy busy at times uh, getting all that done um, and trying to. I think one of the biggest challenges is trying to keep it creative and and trying to make sure that I never want a reader to pick up one of the sequels having read one of the earlier books and be like, oh yeah, okay, it's more of the same, right, like, I've seen seen this before, you know, Um, and so I'm always trying to add in something that's new and fun that will be unexpected so that, you know, there's a reason for a person to keep reading these books, basically.
1: How has copywriting or the art of copywriting, has it affected your writing or can you see it uh, being applicable to um, the general storytelling process or like I just want to get at your ideas about that?
0: Uh, yeah, so, so I'll take that a couple ways. Um, <laughs> the, um, I think, I mean, first of all, the fact that I do so much writing aside from my books, right? Um, helps because because I'm you know I'm always thinking about how you know how can I say this better how can I say this more efficiently you know when when the client gives us something that is you know 500 words long and it actually needs to be 200 words you know how do you do that and still make sure that what needs to be said is said Um, and so that helps when you when When you're using, you know, when you're, when I come down to the books, also that that helps hugely. Um, What's different with the with the books is that when you're writing an iambic pentameter, you are having to use. I mean, you're having to slip words in that you wouldn't in when you're writing copy because you're trying to make sure you're fitting the meter correctly, right? Right. And and so, um, so it ends up being. It's it's clean, but for a different reason. I you know in a different way, I guess, than than with copywriting. Um, I mean, the other, the other so the other way I would take that my answer to that question is um, when you are writing copy, and when you're working. I mean, what I do at Pivot is is I do a lot of copywriting, but I also help companies um, sort of go through branding processes and and specifically focus on how they tell their stories. Um, and so that's a, a big piece of what I do. And and so making sure that when you are, you are writing copy that you are telling a consistent story for this company, you know, that whatever it is that you're, you're trying to talk, you know, uh, say about them the larger story they're trying to tell, make sure your copy is consistent with that, that your voice is consistent with that, all of that kind of stuff comes into comes into play, and doing it then usually in a very sort of as efficiently as possible, you know, so you're not overusing words or just having phrases that aren't helpful or necessary or whatever. Um, and so I think that helps when it comes to the books because every, I mean, first of all, there's the larger story of like, okay, what is what's happening in this book, you know, what's happening in, you know, which is the story of the movie, you know. I have to get from Anakin, uh, you know, being a Jedi with Obi-Wan at the beginning, and at the end he's Darth Vader, right? Like, that's where this story's going. But also then every character has their own story, right? Right, And, and, you know, I want my characters to have, to feel like they have internal cohesiveness to them. I don't want them to... um, you know, I don't want uh, Luke Skywalker talking in a brash way that sounds more like something Han would say, right? Or, or something like that. Sort of um, voice, um, yeah, so yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so those are the kind of decisions. So I think copywriting, you know, in terms of how you tell a company's story is very similar to how you tell a
1: character story or tell the large narrative also. It's, it's fascinating because you're like, um, with the books, the William Shakespeare's Star Wars books, you, you're an, uh, you're adapting. And like there's screenwriters out there are trying to adapt um, novels or a life story, you know? And so they're like this recorder, or, you know, they have to take what's out there and see through the muck to be like, what is the through line? Like I said, it's interesting you brought that up. Like, even though we we're familiar with these movies, we're familiar with the story, when you adapt it to this style, you still are like, oh my gosh, wait a minute, I have to make sure that the it's prevalent that the the turn from Anakin to Darth Vader is there, um, but the voices for each characters are there in the writing. Um, even though, yes, we're all so familiar with it, you still have to do the work on that. And then copywriting is fascinating to me because, I don't know, Do you, is there a method you guys use in terms of or your own personal way of handling it? Do you start with a title, a headline? Because sometimes you might start with a headline, like, okay, that's a catchy headline. So now everything that I write has to... Or as a Joe Sugarman, famous copywriter, says, it's like you, the headline is there to get you to read the second line. The second line is there to get you read the third. And the idea is to get that slippery slope to some sort of call to action that makes the reader go, okay, I'll take action to do whatever it is. Do you, in your process, do you start with like the headline? Because that would be the same as a screenwriter going, let me start with a title or let me start with a log line. So like in one sentence, this is what my story's about. And as my story, when I finish the script, does it it does it deliver on the promise of what that log line is or synopsis is? I don't know, does the your copywriting process kind of fit in the same way? Oh, no, yeah, role? it's yeah,
0: it's pretty similar to that. I mean, so when we when we're working on campaigns for clients, we'll come up with a headline first. Um, and really that is in some ways sort of the theme of the campaign, right? it's it's uh, you know, this is what we're going to do to talk about this product or this service. You know, uh, this time around, and and so it's supposed to be some. should be something that draws people in. You know, but once I have a headline which is really my creative direction, right? Then I can write the copy to match that um, and to go with, to go with that. Um, and but again, keeping in mind sort of the different. Voices that different companies want to have. You know, some companies want to, uh, you know, some pe- companies want to scare their customers or, or make them <laughs> sad or fearful or whatever. Uh, and and others want to uh, reassure or have fun with their customers or whatever it is, right? But, but yeah, it, all, it always does start with,
1: you know, a headline that uh, that the catches people's things, attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess I get the headline, get things going. I guess you could always come back and change the headline after you write the piece. Thank you. But as we wrap up here, I wanted to ask you. Um, so you've had this—it's amazing—you have this this uh, experience. Like again, from the outside perspective, is like, wow, oh, these books are amazing. You could just like quit your day job, you know? Like you know, be like the, that's the dream of like filmmakers or any artists. Um, what has been sort of like the uh, Eye opening reality uh, or things you didn't know or secrets you didn't know about the publishing industry that you're like, oh, that was interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, certainly uh, uh, many people are surprised to find that I still have a day job, right? Yeah. Um, and that has to do with a couple of different realities. I mean, it's first of all, when you are licensing somebody else's property, you're not making as much money as you normally would Uh, and that's not a complaint it's just a reality Uh, and I totally get it Um, and so you know although three of these books have been bestsellers you know they they um, they're it's still not enough income that it's you know that I could quit my day job
1: Um, well you know yeah Andy Weir of The Martian who wrote The Martian like he was working a day job up until I think the movie was really like Maybe I mean he for the longest time he was still working his engineering day job, yeah. even though like every knew it was a bestseller is being made into a movie and he was just like hey what you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and and that's I mean um, and you also
0: learn what it is I mean um, so my books were bestsellers and and they uh, you know the highest I got. On the New York Times Best Star list was a ten with with William Shakespeare Star Wars, the first one. But you you also sort of learn like there's a great distance between number ten and number one. Uh, I mean, there's a huge difference there, um, and and so uh, so that's another reality that you learn. And I think people have some people have in their minds that if you're on the New York Times bestseller list, that means that you've sold millions of books uh and that's just not not the reality now my books have sold super well and i would never complain you know and 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 i'm lucky enough that you know i sell more books than most people ever get to most people who write a book uh but um but it's still not you know like i'm pushing i'm not jk rowling you know like selling millions of books when they're released and that kind of thing um so that that's that's a reality um i mean and then there's also the, the, okay, what are you going to do next question, right? <laughs> um, you know, so like, uh, unless, again, unless you, you know, made enough on your first project that you're suddenly independently wealthy, right? Like, you have to figure out what you're going to do after this to, because uh, it's only going to carry you so far. And when you have... I mean, for me, I have a family, I have a mortgage, you know, like there are realities and I have to, uh, yeah, I have to continue making a certain amount of money or like, you know, we won't have a house anymore. (laughs) So like, so yeah, so you have to think a lot about what the next project is going to be and whether or not it's going to, you know, you know, for me, again, because it's not, Because I'm still relatively, I mean, I'm still relatively unknown, right? People aren't necessarily clamoring for more Ian Descher books, right? In in the way that J.K. Rowling or Stephen King have their name recognized, right? Like, my books are read by lots of people, but it's because people are excited about the books, not necessarily because... I mean, I think I do a fine job writing them, right? But it's not like... Everyone is dying to know what I'm going to write next. Certainly, you know, and so that's another sort of different thing. Like, is is whatever, if I if and when I publish a book beyond this series, uh, is it going to be commercially successful uh, at all compared to these? You know, I don't know. There's no guarantee. So these are all the the things that you know, sort of. Keep you up at
1: night and that sort of thing, you know. And keep you wondering, like, well, where's this? Where's this gonna go? You know. It's fascinating, it's fascinating you said that because there's people, uh, filmmakers, uh, advice, uh, filmmaker friend. He said, you know, just start putting your name on top of your film, like a book by Ian Desher You know, like you just start branding your. Like it's one of those things, like a film by Scott McMahon. So that way, you have enough of them out there. You're like, oh, well, that's. It's it's interesting, just a slight shift in like titling. And uh, self-preposterous, like uh, you know, uh, pretentiousness it <laughs> helps, like with the, the branding. Anyhow, it's just fascinating. I, I, I think your, the story is what's fascinating to me is the the level of success uh, from the outside, and, and but said internally too. But it helps because that is the that's the thing I'm fighting in film troopers. A lot of filmmakers are like the dream because we're all drinking the poison of like. If I just make the one thing, everything the the, lo- the lottery, I will hit the lottery. And and the realities are there's a, uh, it's not that way, and there's a way to work the problem, but still have a lot of creative um, fulfillment. Because I'm assuming your, I I hope that your family's really proud of you. Yeah, I'm proud of you. Yeah, they're amazing. They
0: are, and I've had a fantastic time doing these. It's been so much fun, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, I wouldn't trade this experience for anything. Uh, oh. Yeah. It's,
1: that concludes my interview with author Ian Desher of the William Shakespeare Star Wars books. And you can find them everywhere on Amazon or Barnes & Noble at your local library probably. Um, and they're really delightful and it's just a really well done series of books and I hope that they make one for The Force Awakens. So if you like this podcast, think about leaving a ratings and review over at iTunes at FilmTrooper.com forward slash iTunes, or on Stitcher Radio, if that's where you listen to this podcast, at filmtrooper.com forward slash Stitcher. It's also going to be available, it should be available, on Google Play and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode, and this is part two of my four-part series on storytelling. And in the next episode, I interview a filmmaker and a screenwriter who just recently sold a script to a Hollywood studio and we'll get to hear a little bit more about that journey as I'm sure a lot of you would like to know and that's in episode number 104 coming up But if you want to get all the details on this one just um, go to filmtrooper.com forward slash 103 for episode number 103 thanks again for everyone sticking around and supporting and listening to Film Trooper I will see you next time Film Trooper
0: filmmaking freedom for the independent